turn that on while you were talking, Beth. <laughs> anyway, it's not my first time up here, but it's my first time using this thing on my head and on my belt, so I'm hoping I don't get too tangled up in it. If Beth or Roger need to rescue me at some point, we, we might just have to stop things and let it work. But um, welcome to UBC this morning. We are returning in our message today to Ephesians after our Easter messages, and we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. This passage deals with one of the first big challenges of the early church being established in the first century. It was removing the barriers for people other than Jews to follow Jesus. We take this for granted now, 2,000 years later, and we don't have many debates about whether Gentiles are allowed, have to be circumcised before they become Christians, but it was a big issue then. And um, it was a very big part of Paul's ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. And we'll look a little bit more into Paul's personal story as we unpack that today. Louis has given this Ephesians passage overall the title, Ascend. And today's passage gives us a lovely image of the unified church, God's holy church, being built into a holy temple where God dwells in his holy, by his Holy Spirit. Church unity is certainly something very worthy of steadily working towards. Um, we may no longer grapple with the Jew-Gentile issue, but it is clear there are parallels today. We have some unity issues that are, are worth talking about. Um, so I think as we understand how the early church grappled with the Jew-Gentile issue, there are parallels that we can learn lessons from today um, that may help us build wisely into this living holy temple that we're privileged to be a part of. And as we embrace our vision of, of individually seeing God change lives through me, and corporately how we build together. So let's read our passage together. And I think it's coming, it's probably a bit small for you to read. I think I can read mine from here, although I do have my glasses if I get stuck. But I can't see you if I put my glasses on, so we'll see how we go. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles, that's non-Jews, we're actually, most of us are probably Gentiles. I don't know if there's any Jewish heritage here, but most of us fit the category of non-Jew or Gentile. So you're Gentiles by birth, called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace and has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God and through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens 
with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostle and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Amen. We'll come back to those verses, but um, this map is probably not very easy for you to read. It looked really good on my computer screen, but I hadn't quite worked out what it was going to look like up there. But um, Cameron's given me a pointer thing that I can... Oh, it was working before. Am I pointing it the wrong way? <laughs> I'm not sure which way I'm supposed to point it. Aha, it helps. Okay, so this is a map. You might recognise the shape of the Mediterranean Sea and it's got a little title down the bottom. It comes from, it's a public domain map, so I'm allowed to use it. It's, um, it's from Smith's Bible Atlas. So there are a few Smiths here, aren't there? So famous Bible Atlas. And, um, but it does show the travels of Paul. I continue to be impressed by Paul. He's an amazing person. And um, I think as I've been reading Acts and reading his letters and as we've all been absorbing Ephesians, there is so much to learn from this man. Um, so we start off, we first meet Paul actually down in Jerusalem in a really sad space when he was, um, Stephen was being stoned in Acts Seven, I think it is right at the end. And the people who were witnessing the stoning of Stephen threw their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. And this is, this is our Paul that we're learning about. But going back, Saul was born up here in Tarsus. So you'll have to look at my pointer because I'm sure you can't read anything that's up there. But Tarsus in Cilicia, um, which is part of sort of Asia Minor, which is essentially modern day Turkey. Um, I haven't been to that part of the world, but that's where it is, not far away from Israel, Syria, and then we go into Cilicia, where Paul Saul, as he was then known, grew, grew up in his family. And he was a very devout Jew. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He knew, he, it was a, described as a Hebrew of the Hebrews. We assume his family spoke Aramaic in the home. He then went down as a student um, to Jerusalem, we don't know how old he was at that stage, but he studied under a fellow called Gamaliel and learned the Hebrew law. So he just absorbed everything there was to learn. It was said that he was advancing age beyond his years. He just knew the law inside out. So he was a Pharisee, which meant that they absorbed everything of the oral law as well as the, the written law. So Paul was an expert in the law and he, along with the Jews at that time, just had not got Jesus' teaching, really. They, they accepted that Jesus' crucifixion was evidence of blasphemy, really. They're saying, you know, Jesus wasn't who he said he was. So therefore, the fact that he died was evidence that he wasn't doing the right thing. So then, as his early disciples stood up, people had to think, well, what, what are they doing? Don't they know this fellow wasn't, wasn't from God? So we have a very sincere, devout Paul who 
is persecuting the church. So he, he says himself he took act, he was zealous for persecuting the early church. He, he took, dragged men and women out of their houses and took them prisoners. Um, he was on the way from Jerusalem with letters going up to Damascus to arrest some people up there to bring back down to Jerusalem from trial. So you can, Damascus is up here at the bottom of Syria. So that's where we have this dramatic conversion experience. In Acts 9, we read that he's on the road with letters and suddenly this great light from heaven shines down and he falls down and he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Imagine this devout, sincere, zealous fellow who thought he had all the answers, thought he knew everything, just stopped in his tracks being challenged by Jesus calling out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So the Lord answers him <laughs> and, um, and says, I am Jesus. And um, what paradigm shift. You know, Saul's life changed dramatically around. He became Paul. He went in a completely new direction. We then see, after that, all the things he did, his missionary journeys, there's one, two, and then three, and then eventually he goes all the way over to Rome, which is actually quite off the side of the map here, and spends some time in house arrest. Um, so he does an amazing amount of stuff in his life, shares the gospel. He really was the gospel to the Gentiles. But it wasn't without its difficulty. And um, one of the... Paul was uniquely positioned, I guess. He was a strong Jew. He knew everything there was to know about Judaism. Um, so once he got the fact that Jesus came as a fulfilment of that, that revelation that Jesus gave him must have been amazing. Just imagine how much enlightenment would have come in that moment of conversion when he was knocked down and, and just then absorbed everything that Jesus had for him to know. He was particularly well equipped to argue all the points of Jewish law. Um, so when the situation arose in the early church that some Jewish Christians felt that the Gentiles needed to become Jews before they could become Christians, Paul took the battle head on. And we read in, there's a Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15, where certain people have come down and were teaching the believers, unless you were circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And so this brought Paul and Barnabas are said to have gone into sharp dispute and debate with them. So they took it very seriously. They, they engaged in the, in the battle that this was something that was worth standing up for and sorting out. And we know that Paul spoke into that situation. He'd had a dramatic vision um, when God had opened up his mind um, to minister to Cornelius. And he'd had that vision of the sheep coming down with animals that he thought was unclean and, and couldn't possibly eat. And he had been told, go and eat. And 
Peter was challenged by that. So he spoke into the situation in Jerusalem too. And there was much discussion there at that Council of Jerusalem amongst the elders and the apostles. And eventually James, um, as, as a key apostle there, was able to make a judgment that it shouldn't be difficult for the Gentiles to, who were turning to God to become Christians and they didn't have to be circumcised. He gave some sensible guidelines to help the Jews and Gentiles get along with each other by understanding some core values together, but they didn't have to be circumcised, they didn't have to go abide by the whole law. So it, it's quite a dramatic point in church history, that Jerusalem Council. And, and then, as I say, we're opened up, Paul started down, down here in Israel, I'm not very good with this pointer, and then look at the whole Roman world that was impacted by his travels and his ministry amongst different places. And we're here because Paul was prepared to listen when, when Jesus stopped him on that road and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So I think we can move on to the next slide. Sorry, Cameron, I'm getting a bit carried away. I'm not very easy to follow. So this next section of the, of the, the passage we read earlier just reinforces all the words I've got in bold there, just repeated, peace, two groups becoming one. Peace, a new humanity, making peace, reconcile, peace, peace, one spirit, fellow citizens, members of his household. There's, um, there's such a strong sense that, that this, is, this is the truth. Jesus came and preached peace so that people could be one. Unity is absolutely vital. It took some working out, it took some arguing into, it took some effort, but it was absolutely worth it. You know, Ken talked about the rhythm of grace a fortnight ago from the earlier part of chapter two. And this passage takes us back to acceptance and identity. Those repeated words, peace, reconciliation, becoming one, there's such an acceptance in that place. Unity is something that we ascend to. God lifts us up to be rightful people, the church, the believers that he has called us to be. Ascending to unity is not without effort, but with a basis of strong acceptance and identity, we are sustained as we work towards unity. I think working toward unity may be one of the most significant good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. I wonder what lessons we need to learn today. What are the divisions today that Paul would address if he was writing to the church in Olveston? He wouldn't be talking about Jews and Gentiles. What would he be writing to us about? What would he be writing to the global church who need to be built together into a temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, and there are many things that through church history there have been big divides about and there's needed to be nutting out to come together with unity again. But we are a very spread out, divided church and I think over 2,000 years we've collected lots of thinking that 
has been justified at a time or thought real at the time, but we need to challenge that thinking and think, what does it take to move towards unity? Certainly, historically, a significant one for me personally, and I think for us as a church, and probably a, a Western church in general, understanding the work of the Holy Spirit is one that has caused a lot of divide in churches. Now, are we cessationalist or renewalist? Do you even know what those words mean? Um, I know I have... Um, absorbed cessationalist teaching from a young age. It's what I grew up in, that's what I thought. And basically cessationism, it's a long word, but it's, it's a Protestant doctrine that spiritual gifts such as speaking in tongues, prophecy and healing ceased with the apostolic age. And some would add when the scripture was completed, when we had the whole word of God there, that that meant that those gifts were no longer relevant. It's interesting, that's never been the teaching in the Catholic Church because they've looked for miracles all through the history of Catholicism and it's been part of appointing people to sainthood. It's been all of that. It's very much a big part of Catholic teaching. But in our Protestant circles, it became a strongly established doctrine. And... Um, to some extent, it was a swing against some of the excesses of probably Catholicism, putting too much emphasis on that, and the, we can shake our heads and think, and that's ridiculous, why would people believe in relics, and why would people do that? And, and we, can, we can look back and, and think that's not, not, that's not right. And people genuinely had good reasons to be concerned about, about some of those things. Um, but the swing way, way the other way may have just gone a bit far, I think. It's, um, it's interesting, the other big influence on Protestant thinking that led to this doctrine of cessationism was, was just the Enlightenment, as people understood the scientific world and different things. Superstition was seen as old-fashioned and, and not relevant. So we lost a lot of the capacity to think that God could move in supernatural ways. Um, it's interesting, we have made a shift in our thinking here. It's been something that's been taught over more recent years that, that we understand that the gifts of the Spirit are for today. So I don't any longer hold to cessationist theology and I suspect most of us here have probably moved past that thinking. Um, but <laughs> the reality is it's still very much part of who I am. And it's, it's so deeply ingrained that I think I don't stretch to think bigger than, than that now. So I think that growing up in that thinking very much shapes my reserve. And I wonder how much we limit the movement of the spirit in our midst because of that. You know, across the world today, the church is very different to our local experience. Um, Ken has been encouraging us to all read a book in leadership called um, Global Church by um, a man called Graham Hill. And he has done a lot of work understanding the, the church across the world. And um, 
recognising that it's not very white and it's not very middle class across the world. It's a very different look with the church. And, and there's a lot more movement of the spirit across a lot of the world church, which is much more dominant than, than we here in the West. So we, we will hear more from this book, I'm sure, as it talks about majority world Christians and a whole range of different things. But I was impressed by a quote he made by um, somebody called Julie C. Ma and Won Suk Ma, and I looked them up and I watched a lovely little DVD of them talking, and they are the most beautiful Korean um, Pentecostal pastors who went as missionaries to the Philippines. And they just talked very freely about the normality of, as they share the gospel in, in mountain villages, these people who are animistic, who believe in spirits, suddenly see that the Holy Spirit is powerful and, and they can trust that God is working in their midst. And it's not something that we just live in the normality of, and, um, but it's exciting that it is the norm across a lot of the world. You know, if there was a new council of Jerusalem looking at cessationalist versus renewalist theology, I think testimonies from across the world would speak very strongly into that. Um, they make a quote, they say, the church birthed in Jerusalem was highly charismatic and indigenous Pentecostal churches throughout the world are another sure proof of this contention. Completely unconnected with modern Pentecostal tradition, there are countless numbers of indigenous churches, particularly in the non-Western world, um, where healing, prophecy, miracles, exorcism, tongues are naturally practised. It's interesting, they cite that in, in China, um, where there's been very little outside influence, for a whole generation, that the church, the house churches there are strikingly charismatic. So I think there is a big room for us to, to um, stretch our thinking. Now, we made a big step here at UBC in ascending towards unity when we appointed a pastor from a Pentecostal tradition. I want to honour the way that Louis and Gabe have come amongst us, not with a heavy Pentecostal agenda. Um, they haven't come with a judgmental attitude, um, but they've come with a commitment to understand where we're at, to seek what God is saying to us in our present time here, and to be part of that journey into understanding where God may take us at UBC in the future. So I want to call us to make a commitment as we look to ascend together to make, to make a commitment to love and unity. I think this next verse in John 13, 34 to 35. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Unity is just powerful, and what a powerful foundation. Um, Jesus Christ himself is our chief cornerstone. He taught unity. He wanted to build his church. Um, and as we're building together and rising to become a holy temple, may we be a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You know, the parallel to 
um, the body principle, which we're, we're quite familiar with. We think about unity when we're not all heads, we're not all feet, we're not all hands, but we work together. Um, and that's a lovely image of church unity. But this is a, the building analogy is a different one where in unity we're all contributing something as we build something and as we ascend. Um, and it's not just an individual thing. When I think about the temple of the Holy Spirit, my mind tends to go to that um, verse where it says, don't you know your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? And it, it, Paul uses that in the context of reminding people to be pure because they don't want to link their bodies with anything impure um, because we have the, the Holy Spirit living within us. But the passage today, and it's par parallel in, in 1 Corinthians 3, talks about... Um, you, um, a body growing together and the temple as part of a communal body. So I think that next passage in um, 1 Corinthians 3 is, talks about, that's a very familiar one. Paul says, you know, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. So Jesus is the foundation. And then the, that passage goes on to talk about the gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw that can all be built on that foundation. Um, and fire is going to test the quality of that building. So it's quite a scary passage, actually, when we're challenged by it. But don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple collectively, not just here at UBC, but across the world. He's building a church where we're his temple um, and that God's spirit dwells in our midst. A warning, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. That's, that's quite a big thing to grasp. So, so back to our application question for today. How are we building in our ascension journey towards unity? I want to close with a, um, a personal story linking ascension mountain climbing and building, and I'm not really qualified to speak in either, so I'll just sort of put that out there, but, but here we go. Last November, Roger and I took on the Mount Rufus circuit from the southern end of Lake St. Clair. We probably collected a few sermon illustrations that day as we stretched ourselves a little on that walk between my stamina issues on the way up and Roger's dodgy knees on the way down. We managed the advertised seven hour circuit in just over nine hours and we were quite late for dinner. It was a slow and steady climb up the southeastern side of the mountain, but the view from the top was absolutely worth the effort. And I don't know, again, it's probably not as amazing, just a little picture from there, but I naively slogged up this mountain, looking back down at Lake St. Clair, which was lovely. Every so often we get a nice view looking back down towards Lake St. Clair. But when we reached the top, um, or the first summit as it was, I naively thought that I'd be able to see the West Coast. <laughs> Tasmania just goes and goes. There are mountains and more mountains and more mountains, just layers and layers and layers of mountains. 
And it was such an incredible experience for me. I, I haven't climbed enough mountains to have collected mountaintop experiences, but um, this was really powerful, just to see God's handiwork, this beautiful state we live in, and to recognise that as we, as we climb and reach a point, we can just be so blessed by seeing all that God has in front of us. And... Um, that view <laughs> inspired me. I turned around and looked north and thought, I can make that next little summit, which was just a little way up. And as we almost got up to the next little summit, we met some people who knew a bit more than us who said, that's not the summit, that's over there. <laughs> so, so we got up to the next little summit and then I had to go west and that took a lot of encouragement. But we did get there, and I think there's a picture. Aha. Uh -huh. So we got to the real summit. I think you might be able to just see with a magnifying glass a little red hat that I'm sitting under down to the, down to the right of the um, big pile of stones there. So this pile of rocks is the proper summit of Mount Rufus. Um, people have put it there to define that this is where the real summit is. And um, apparently it's called a... Can. And yes, it's sort of almost got a, a roll of the R, I think, in it. And um, it comes from a, a Scottish Gaelic word that um, of, of a pile of stones. And they've been used historically for many, many years, sometimes to mark monuments, sometimes to mark a burial area. They've been used as navigational guides way before lighthouses. Um, they'd, they'd have them built up so that ships could see them. And um, this one certainly made it clear where the true summit was. And, and it would stand above the snow line quite often as a mark for where the top of the mountain was. There's a lovely tradition of Scottish travellers um, adding a small stone to a cairn <laughs> um, as they go by with the attempt to stabilise it and to protect it against harsh weather. Um, so I have to warn you, don't try that in national parks because you're not technically allowed to build new ones or alter existing ones in Tasmanian national parks. But um, it was lovely to see this. And I just thought it's a helpful picture for us to hold on to as we ponder how are we building into unity. I hope it will remind us that even a little small stone that God may be prompting us to place in a step of obedience or an encouragement to somebody else or a prayer to stretch some of our thinking in an area can slot in and make this amazing structure that we're building, God's holy temple, his church, can make it stronger by the little things that we add in along the way. Um, so think about how we build. Are we building in faith? Are we stretching up? Are we expanding? Are we building? Or are we limiting God with the way we build? Are we a little bit too caught up on some things that might be barriers? You know, if we learn one thing from Paul's story, it is that it is possible to be very sincere and devout, but still need to be stopped in our tracks and allow Jesus to point us in a new direction. As a little girl, I called myself Nanny. 
And um, sometimes it's easier to hear what God is saying to me if I imagine myself as little nanny. <laughs> and, and I wonder sometimes, is he saying, nanny, nanny, why do you limit me? Why don't you allow me to bestow gifts upon you to use to minister to people? You see, I might be able to stand and say, you know, I'm open to the gifts of the Spirit. I'm open. I accept this. I've moved away from cessationist teaching. I'm I'm ready, Lord. But I, I can't say that I've honestly yearned for God to empower me to minister. And that's a scary space. It's, um, it's quite a challenging space to think that, that my reserve may be, in fact, very limiting what God is doing. You would think, you know, that in my line of work in particular, um, that I would yearn for the gift of healing. Um, and I do pray sincerely for, for people. I pray that God will, will move in their lives, that God may heal infirmity. But I'm not in the habit of expecting miracles. And, and I think I'm limiting God in that. And it's a challenge for me. And um, I just pray that as we step into what God has for us in our next place, I'm excited for Alpha happening here. I'm excited that we have a chance just to do a lovely little review of what it means to follow Jesus and for people from amongst us to do that, for people from outside to come in. And my prayer is that we won't limit God in any way in in walking through that journey. Um, Our final slide today is from Jesus' prayer in John 17 and this is where he prays for us and um, he prayed for his disciples and then he prayed for those who were to come. My prayer is not for them, the disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that's us, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. What a beautiful picture. Father, Son, Spirit, one. Us as church as one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. I think it's time to invite the music team back up. And I want to close in prayer, but um, just take the time to think, what is God calling you to do today? Do you need to let something go? Do you need to open up to think about how we build in unity together in a different way? Is there one little stone that you can see already that you need to be prepared to place?